Lord, teach us in whatever situation we are to be content. Let us know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, let us learn the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And let godliness with contentment be great gain to us. And little with the fear of the Lord and quietness be better than great treasure and trouble with it. Lord, grant that our life may be free from the love of money, and we may always be content with what we have, ever saying, let the will of the Lord be done. Enable us in our endurance to possess our own souls, and let steadfastness always have its full effect, that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lord, give us grace to mourn as though we were not mourning, and to rejoice as though we were not rejoicing, and to buy as though we had no goods and to deal with the world as though we had no dealings with it, because the appointed time has grown very short, and the present form of this world is passing away. And God's people said, Amen. A prayer by Matthew Henry um, is an encouragement to me. So much of what we've done, what I've gone through this last year, is found in that prayer. But as we look this morning through the book of Philippians, we are coming back um, to a text may be familiar for some of us because we've been working through it for so long. For others, perhaps it's a text you've gone to multiple times. Um, but I think it's fitting for us to end the, the year this way. We're a week off of Christmas. Those Christmas presents, boys and girls, they've all lost their shine. Half of them are broken, can't find their batteries anymore. The rest of us know that Christmas has left us weary and tired without all the quaint sentimental joys that we thought we would have, and yet this morning we're facing a text that I think will give us great hope and encouragement. Uh, we're coming to the end of the book of Philippians, and I think there'll probably be two more sermons off of this, but uh, just to kind of recap where we're at, there are two main themes that run through the entire book, that of love and unity. Without going through all of them again, um, we've come now to the final section where Paul is encouraging the Philippian church, saying, um, I see your love and unity. You've done so very well. Do more. Lean in more. Love more fervently. Be more unified in Christ. And, and there's only one way that's going to happen. And he's given us three specific things, a, a three-legged stool as it is to stand on. The first was Philippians 4, 1 through 7. That was prayer. That's the, the unloading our hearts to God in every circumstance. And the last time, several weeks ago, we looked at uh, Philippians 4, 8 through 9. That's meditation. That's the filling our mind with peace, that, that peace of God that comes when we think on him. This morning, in Philippians 4, 10 through 13, we're going to see what contentment is. And that really is the goal of our prayer and our meditation, by the way, is contentment. That's settling our souls on Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at the text in, in three points hopefully simple points. Hopefully, children, you'll be able to follow along. The first point is where. Just the question where. That's verses 10 and 11. Where is contentment to be found? When? That's point number two. When? When is contentment to be found? That's, that's verse 12. So where is contentment to be? When should we have contentment? Finally, Point number three, how? How how do we become content? 
That's verse 13. So let's start with point number one then. The where. Holy Scripture reads, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in every situation I am to be contented. Uh, The Philippians saw Paul's external need and assumed distress. And there's good reason for that. If you go back through the book of Philippians, how often Paul discusses things like him being imprisoned or that he's beaten and that the Philippians are even sharing some of those things with him. And, and so because they've, they love Paul and they, they see what's going on, um, they want to do something for him. They had themselves been suffering greatly, but were quite eager in love and unity with his ministry to send him a gift to relieve whatever wants Paul may have had. And that's exactly the type of affection that Paul wants for the Philippians. And really, in the next section, the the next sermon, Lord willing, should I preach it, um, we're going to see that he approves of their gift. He's thankful for the gift. He's accepting it and commends them for it. But, But Paul wants to take a little bit of a left turn for a moment. A couple of sentences doesn't seem like much and yet very precious. Because he, he wants to address the Philippian church, and he wants, to, he wants to point them back. He wants to clarify what it means for God to complete a good work in them. What's it going to look like, Philippians 1.6, as God is, is working in their hearts? I think Paul has a little bit of a concern that they may have it slightly wrong. You see, thinking about ourselves, if you or I are in a difficulty or trouble, the first thing that typically comes to mind is relief. It's good, we think, for whatever sorrows and sufferings to cease. Kind of do a little bit of arithmetic. And I think this is what the Philippians are thinking of when they're thinking of Paul and what's going on. The math goes like this. Need plus provision equals satisfied. If if Paul is stuck in prison, potentially in Rome, if he doesn't have all the comforts that he would normally enjoy, let's send him a gift. It's going to make everything better. We tend to do the same thing in very sneaky ways. We we won't say it quite this way, but if, if we were to summarize it, this is the kind of things that our hearts are saying. I need to be loved. So if I could just find a spouse, I'll be satisfied. I need to be secure. So, so if I could just get that promotion or, or, or move to a different job, if I could make my, my business the best it could be, then I will be satisfied. I need to feel peace. And so if those nagging children could just be still for a couple minutes and stop being so darn needy, I will be satisfied. You see, Paul knows that there is a major flaw in that type of thinking. Nowhere is God at all needed. Nowhere in that formula. Neither is God glorified when our hearts find their needs satisfied elsewhere. Nor is Christ received as our prophet, priest, and king. You see, this this kind of thinking takes all the fullness that belongs to God alone, and it puts it on the creature, the broken, 
empty cisterns of the world. What Paul is after for himself and for the Philippian church, what the Lord is after for us, brothers and sisters, is not so much a change in our circumstances, but a heart that rests in Christ in every circumstance. And we see that's that's what Paul says when he says he does not speak of being in need. Because wherever Paul finds himself, he is needless because he's learned to draw everything from Christ. And that is the attitude of contentment. It's a being satisfied in every circumstance with God's glory through the person and work of Christ. It's a constant attitude of the heart. It's a wondrous place to be able to say at every time and in every way with Christ, I have enough. But what does that mean exactly? I think having just a couple sentences here could leave us to our own imaginations to run off in all kinds of different directions. We might quickly go to piety and think what we need is to act like there's no pain or suffering at all. Oh, we could treat pain and sorrow in a kind of a stoic way, just shove it down deep and, and, and pretend that we are really satisfied. We may even avoid things that God has given us that are good, good helps, because we imagine it's more godly if we just sit under the thumb of God. None of these describe what biblical contentment is at all. Contentment does not mean that we have a blindness to pain and sorrow. We don't deny that life hurts, that circumstances are not what we would prefer, or act as if we're not really in pain. That would be a lie, a violation of the ninth commandment. No, instead, contentment means evaluating, evaluating what we may not have right now in this moment in the light of what we have in Christ eternally. Contentment doesn't mean we don't cry out to God and encourage others to pray for us, that that our outward condition may change. Rather, we, waiting expectantly on God, believe that that's often the place where we are going to find contentment in prayer, in waiting, in, in calling on his name. And we should not deny any lawful help or wanting to be free from suffering. God may use many types of means to alter our condition or to alleviate our burdens. Brothers and sisters, medicine is not a bad thing. And yet, contentment means, however, that we submit to him, waiting on relief when God wills, how God wills, and if God wills. So then, how can we discern whether or not there's a lack of contentment in our heart. I mean, it's, it's clearly not struggling. It's clearly not desiring a change. What is a lack of contentment or what is discontentment? It's when we murmur or complain against God for giving us the circumstances that we're in. It's when we fret or are anxious about our current or future circumstances. It's whenever we seek to be distracted from or or consumed by our circumstances. 
It's when we take great discouragement as if God is unwilling or unable or unloving enough to help. It's when we forget the Lord or or fail to give him thanks for what we do have. It's when our hearts are not warmed by thoughts of God's nearness or or of confidence in him hearing us in prayer. And finally, it's when we're willing to pursue unlawful helps, when we're willing to sin, when we're willing not listen to God or the church, when our attitude is, if I could only be delivered from this, I would pay any cost. And you see, this is, this is really the crux of our problem this morning. All of these are matters of the heart. These aren't simply issues of who or when or where or how. You can't just avoid certain people, demand that others treat you in a specific way, or rearrange your financial portfolio and find contentment. What must happen is not something you can stir up, force, or counterfeit. Instead, the Holy Spirit must do a work in your heart. How helpless we are then to make ourselves contented. How desperate our situation. And that's why Paul says he learned to be content. Because this is not a natural state for anyone. In in fact, it's quite opposite of our nature. As I've already said, we view satisfaction as the absence of trouble and the presence of pleasure. We work hard to make the world right in the way that we want, instead of submitting to the right of the Lord to make our will as he might. So brothers and sisters, can you say this morning that you truly are contented? Are you as satisfied with the Lord in all your circumstances as you ought or as you desire? Take heart. Paul was once in the same place. There was a time where ups and downs could draw his heart and its satisfaction away from the Lord. David, too, knew this struggle. Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? My soul is downcast within me. You see, every saint struggles with discontentment. We read Psalm 73 this morning. What did Asaph say? Everywhere he looked. He was envious, jealous, coveting, discontented. He had to go back to the Lord and learn. Yet, Paul would not leave us to commiserate over our heart's condition. It's not enough just to say we all suffer and let's huddle around and sing Kumbaya and make ourselves feel better about it. Instead, he says he has learned past tense. But how is the Spirit going to help you and I learn to be content? If if the where of contentment is in our hearts, then the way the Spirit is going to teach us contentment is point two, the when. The when. Holy Scripture reads, the Holy Spirit writing for us says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. There's a doctrine that Reformed people are known for. What do you think it is? 
I think most people who would uh, want to describe us with one doctrine is sovereignty. Sovereignty. I mean, we talk about it all the time, don't we? I mean, uh, most of us uh, had a cage stage version of Calvinism at one point, right? Where we, we love the fact that we couldn't save ourselves and that God had to sovereignly work all things to make us alive. As we grow in the Christian faith, we often talk about God being sovereign in the big moments of life. And that's, that's how we tend to encourage each other when we're suffering, right? Well, it's okay. God is, God is sovereign over everything, isn't he? But do we treat sovereignty as a practical doctrine for everyday life? Do you see that even the breath that you're taking right now is a sovereign gift of God? You see, how we view God and, and his sovereignty, they go hand in hand. How we view God and his sovereignty results in or takes away from our contentment. The Lord at any time may be doing a thousand different things in your life, and you may not be aware of all but one or two. But here's what I can tell you for sure. Every providential work is getting at at least three things. Three things. The first is that God wants to glorify himself. Ephesians. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Our salvation is about God's glory. God worked all things together to bring us into his church, to wed us to Christ, as you, if you were here yesterday, you heard, so that we might be with him. And it's, that's for his glory. But it's, but it's more than just our salvation. It's more than just pardoning our sins. Goes to every blade of grass and morning dew. It's, it's the first petition in the Lord's prayer. And if you've been reading with us this year, we just ended on the book of Job. Do you realize the book of Job is God glorifying himself through difficult circumstances in Job's life? It's not that Job had sinned. It's that Job had not learned to be contented with what God had given him. So God is going to glorify himself even through that. The, the second thing that circumstances are meant to do for us is to reveal or test faith. I spent a long time in 1 Peter this last year. 1 Peter 1, 6-7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, your, your faith in the Lord Jesus is precious to God. It should be precious to you. And so circumstances often go very low, that what we might see is that we cling to and relying on Christ and on nothing else. And it's not just hardships, by the way. The parable of the talents does much of the same thing, God giving good gifts that are there to be used in such a way that we prove that our hope is in him. So it's both in much and in little that God wants to reveal our faith. But the third thing, the third thing is every circumstance in your life even you being here this very morning, is about exposing whether or not we're satisfied in the Lord. And really, if, if you want to think about it, it's just a logical outcome of the first two ideas. 
wherever there's glory and faith married together, you should find contentment. Westminster Shorter Catechism, the one question uh, that I wish we Baptists had annexed. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see, to desire his glory and to believe on him will always result in contentment, a heart quieted and resting. If you need proof that this is what God is after, our satisfaction, how about Romans 8, 28? Almost everyone has it memorized. And we know that for, good, for those who love God, God works together all things for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But you see, God is after our good, as he defines it, as what's really good. And so he, he wants us to, to see him as the source, the, the reservoir of all goodness. But it goes beyond that, brothers and sisters. You ever read 29? You memorized it? For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, God orchestrates all the highs and all the lows to conform us to the image of Christ, the one who was always perfectly satisfied with the Father's will, the one who in the garden, facing a wrath that none of us will have to taste if our faith is in Christ, said, not my will, but yours be done. about some scriptural context. We read Exodus 17 this morning. Israel was in the wilderness as a result of God working rightly, mightily to save them. How did he do that? Well, he sent Moses by the burning bush. He alleviated their slavery through sending plagues that he didn't visit on them. He, he had them moved into the desert, but he did that by robbing Egypt of all their finest gold and silver. The sea was split to give them safe passage and destroy their enemies. What a spiritual high that should have been for them. Everything was working out so very well. But they were a large people with many bellies. And so soon they became hungry. And Exodus 16 tells us, you see, they could, they could have all the riches of the world with them. Protection, money. And yet, all it took was a little walking and a little rumbling. Something as basic as the need to eat. They should have been able to trust the Lord. They saw him do things that no one else could. And yet, they grumbled. Exodus 16 Three, would that we had died by the hands of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You see what they're saying? They rather would have been under God's wrath if they could just have a little food. We don't say it that extreme, but how often our circumstances lead us to the same conclusion. If only I could be satisfied with the thing my heart so desperately longs for. And so they put their hope in the gift of God instead of the creator. Scripture reads, And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it till morning. What, what is this about? The Lord 
opened up heaven and he puts dew on the ground to feed them, to satisfy their bellies. He shows that he is the one full of all goodness. But even when he does that, what do they not do? Not listen to Moses. Some left a part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. You see, even, even when God was giving good gifts to satisfy the very needs, it was not enough. They wanted it their way. And they were willing to sin to get what they wanted, to be contented. On the seventh day, the Lord had commanded them not to go out. On the seventh day, some of the people went out and they found no bread. It wasn't a one-time issue. When we read Exodus 17, it starts out with a cry for water in the midst of desert lands. You see, what Thomas Watson said is true of them and it's true of us. It's not troubles that trouble, but discontentment. God was with them the entire time. God was providing for them the entire time, meeting every need, and yet they were disquieted, not content. What was God doing? God was lovingly exposing all their places that their hearts were not satisfied, where their God was their belly instead of the Lord himself. And he does that, he does that not to, not to pour out wrath. He does that that he can show himself to be good and gracious. How? Well, for Israel, it was external signs, bread from heaven, Sabbath rests, water from a rock. From, for us, it's the bread of heaven, which is Christ himself. It's the Sabbath rest on Christ's bosom. It's the living water of the Spirit springing up in our soul. You see, brothers and sisters, this is what God intends to do with all of our circumstances. Wean us away from the sour of sin in this world for a taste of sweeter things, namely himself. And so the Spirit brings us along by taking us through life eyes wide open. That annoying neighbor who whose leaves always end up in your front yard? God's revealing your heart's satisfaction. That one particular child acting up at just the wrong time and place? God's revealing your satisfaction. A spouse keeping a long list of sins? A spouse not willing to offer forgiveness or to ask for forgiveness? God's revealing your heart's satisfaction the bodily pains and discomforts, the ER visits and questions about the future. God's revealing your heart's satisfaction. The sudden acute pain of stepping on a Lego, the long toiling years of a mild illness, even the daily praises of co-workers are opportunities to reveal what our hearts actually long for. Is Christ enough? And no, it's, 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 it's also the successes and the good days. It, it, good days in quotations, brothers and sisters, I wish we would change our language. Every day is a good day with the Lord. Hard is hard. Hard is not bad. But know that the successes and the good days are just as much about revealing what we cling to as the hard days. Exodus 17, all that complaining was followed up with a supernatural win over the Amalekites. 
And then a reordering of Israel so that everyone could meet with wisdom. And then God declaring from the mountain that they would be his treasured possession. They had everything. They lacked for nothing physically or spiritually, only to turn to idolatry and fornication as soon as they thought God was no longer watching. What God would have us learn is to shrink our hearts to our circumstances to accept them as he gives them with joy instead of demanding our circumstances right up, rise up to our heart's demands. If there was one thing I could stick in my heart, in your heart from, from the sermon, it would be this. All of our days are ordered by a loving, merciful, wise God who is about our hearts. If we would only see and believe that as we go through our days, how we might handle ourselves before this Holy One differently. To know that satisfaction in God is for every moment of every day. And every moment of every day, God is working for our satisfaction in Him. How? How practically then? Let's turn to point three. How practically is He doing that? Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, at the very end of this section, Paul gives us the secret of his contentment. Now, this may be the only Bible passage most high school football players in the South know outside of John 3.16. But the context is not about touchdowns or starting a business or overcoming cancer. It's about a sinner become saint who has learned to always be contented. And he's done this by being strengthened by God. You see, Paul came to see the Lord Jesus as the origin or source of everything for every good. Suffering makes sense in light of Christ. Philippians 1, 12-13, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Preaching does good when about Christ. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Philippians 1, 18. Life and death are only meaningful with Christ. For to me is for for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, every good work only makes sense in contentment of Christ. First Timothy 6 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. See, Paul knew that Christ was the fullness of God in bodily form that Christ was able and willing to satisfy his heart in ways that nothing under the sun could. And so Paul learned how to make use of Christ for all of life. Have you learned, brother, sister, how to make use of Christ? Many of us have not thought about the need to make use of Christ, and yet it makes perfectly good sense why our contentment in God ebbs and flows, why it's often so low when we neglect the use of Christ. Here's what Alexander Gross points out. I think the way he does it is, is superb. What is the fullness of the sun to the blind who do not see it? 
or the fullness of the fountain to him who does not drink of it? The fullness of the feast to him who does not feast on it? And what is the fullness of Christ to him who makes no use of Christ? How is a man any better with a lock if he has not a key to use it? It's not a trade, but a trade well followed. It's not a land, but a land well tilled that maintains men, that makes men rich. It is not Christ, but Christ well used that maintains the soul and makes the soul rich. You see, Christ has everything in him that we need to be fully satisfied. And, and, and the thing is, is most of you, especially if you're members of you, you've heard this enough, you wouldn't argue against that. Why so dissatisfied then? We know so little of satisfaction because we have not learned to take in Christ, to lean on Christ, to use Christ in every circumstance God has ordained for us. Gross again says this, Some men live by their intellect, some by their lands, and some by their trades. The Christian lives by his Christ. Of Christ, therefore, let us make use in our understandings to fill us with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and to receive all our direction from him as the traveler makes use of the sun to guide him. Of him, let us make use in our meditations. Think upon him as the bride in her thoughts makes use of the bridegroom. Let the thought of Christ be frequent and precious and the meditations of Christ sweet to us. Of him, let us make use by our faith, depending upon him as the house depends upon the rock, casting ourselves, our cares and burdens on him. As the child upon the parent, let us hide ourselves under the shadow of his wings. As the chicken under the wings of the hen, let us rest upon him for the supply of all our wants and for the deliverance in all our distresses, making him instead all in the absence of all helpers deriving and drawing more and more from his fullness as the thirsty draws water out of the well by the bucket and the branches draw nourishment from the roots. Oh, if we would just have Christ in this way, in this way. I don't know about you, but I, I cannot confess with Paul that I've learned satisfaction yet. Has Christ come to occupy such a place in your thoughts either, in your desires? Do you run to him when overwhelmed for comfort? Do you draw strength from him when you are suffering? Have you learned to say that the one with Christ has no less than the one who has Christ in all other earthly goods? Here's what I think it means to learn Christ or to learn to use Christ. And I'm, I'm taking this from Thomas Watson. I think it means three things. The first is this. To learn to use Christ is to be made like Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Y you see, we, we are to come to the means of grace every Lord's day 
desiring to be less and less like our old man and more and more like the Savior. Do you, do, do you come to preaching wanting that? Do, do you come to corporate prayer or the Lord's table looking for that? Or are you hoping that whatever you hear will get you just through one more day, G give, you, give, you, give you a little boost in the arm, a little pep talk, a little advice, a little guidance here and there? We should be praying that the Lord will prepare our hearts for the vision of our Savior and to receive it joyously with the purpose of being changed into that image. When one's heart can say, give me Christ lest I die, let sin perish and glory resound, then Christ is being used and he will transform you into his own likeness, a likeness full of contentment. And just in case, side note, you think that Christ doesn't want to be used, if you think that's some kind of abuse, how many times does Christ invite people to come to him? And he will do for them what they cannot do for themselves. Second, to learn to use Christ is to believe on Christ personally. To believe on Christ personally. It means to take his word not only as objectively true, but true for me, true for you in this moment and every moment. It's so easy, brothers and sisters, to affirm the Bible is the word of God and errant and true in all that it says. And yet, what does your heart say when you have to look your children in your eyes and tell them they're not going to have a little brother or sister after all? Where does, where does, where does your heart go? When you get that diagnosis that life is going to be cut short, where do you go when your relatives aren't the people you wish that they were? Where do you, where do you go when you're poor and needy and all that keeps happening is your bank account keeps showing a bigger and bigger negative number? Do you run to truth? Do you believe that Christ is speaking to you in his word objectively to comfort you, to carry you? You see, to, to learn to use Christ, to believe on him means that you rely on his promise in such a way as to treat them as if they were more certain than the sun rising morning after morning. More sure than the ground underneath your feet. More real than the next breath that you're going to take. It means we apply his blood to our hearts and say, yes, he has taken my sins and borne them in his body in the tree. Yes, he will make every burden easy, giving rest for my soul. Yes, he will heal me of my sins and my discontentment. This is what it means to use Christ, to believe on him personally. The last thing then is to learn to use Christ is to learn to love Christ. Love flows from the estimation of one's worth. Have you ever thought about that? Christ says this all the time. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. If, if you see Christ as he is, a treasure buried in a field, a pearl of great price, God himself in human flesh come down for us, how could you not love him?
How could you not desire him? You see, I think to love Christ, perhaps most basically, is to be thankful for Christ. I, I appreciate Calvin in his commentary on Ephesians. He's very clear. He says, he says, there's nothing you can give God because God stands in no need. The one thing God wants is that we would open our mouths and loose our tongues to praise him. I think Calvin's right. That's really what the good work that God primarily wants of us. And I think we love him best when we're most thankful for him. We love Christ best when we are most thankful for him. When we see the reality that every need you and I feel is met in him over and over, we look to him with a smile and say, yes, thank you that you are that for us. Brothers and sisters, none of us can do this for ourselves. I've come to the end of the sermon, and I've given you nothing that you can stir up in your own to make yourself content. In fact, if anything, I've given you the Lord's command that we shall not covet, but instead always be satisfied in him. You and I are unrighteous lawbreakers. We have no hope in ourselves. So let me give you the hope, the last word, thing that's going to finally content you. If you will but come to Christ, if you will beg to learn from Christ in prayer, from the Father, to be content, he will give you the fullness of the Spirit and lead you into satisfaction. Until we enter eternity, where contentment will be new and permanent and in Christ unchanging forevermore. Let us pray.